This evening we continue our study of the fourth term of communion. And again, to refresh our memories as to that fourth term, it says that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. And in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas, 1712, was agreeable to the word of God. Last time that we met, we considered the historical circumstances leading up to the National Covenant of 1638 and then the historical circumstances surrounding the subscribing of the National Covenant of 1638 and then a brief overview of the National Covenant. This evening, we want to look more closely at the National Covenant and particularly spend the bulk of our time looking at all of those phrases that we find, or most of those phrases that we find concerning the false teaching of Rome. And there are many phrases in there that may be um, unknown to you. Uh, they may not, uh, you may know them by a different name. There's a lot of things that are, that are going on there, but I uh, hope to this evening clarify uh, at least the National Covenant and so that you'll have a much better idea of what is being taught here. Last time we briefly noted that the uh, National Covenant as to its content is divided into three parts, three main sections. The first part of the National Covenant is simply a repetition of the King's Confession of 1580 1581 wherein the gospel of Jesus Christ is declared to be that which is preached and practiced by the Church of Scotland. The second part was drawn up by Johnston of Wersten, a brilliant lawyer and in that section that he was responsible for He cites the many acts of Parliament, that is the Parliament of Scotland, which demonstrate that the uh, civil government had legally established the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And it also, uh, in that section, uh, indicates that all contraveners of the true Reformed religion are to be prosecuted and that the oath taken by the king It states the oath that was to be taken by the king at his coronation in that section. The third part was written by Alexander Henderson, wherein he simply made application to the present times in 1638. Now, as we begin to look at the the National Covenant, there's just before we look at the National Covenant itself, if you have the volume that is produced by the uh, Free Presbyterian Publications. The, the page just before the National Covenant, you'll find two acts, two adopting acts. And I want to just uh, very briefly uh, note those before we proceed into the uh, covenant itself. These are acts adopting or approving the National Covenant. The first one is an act 
quote, ordaining by ecclesiastical authority the subscription of the confession of faith and covenant with the assembly's declaration. So this is the adopting act of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, August the 30th, 1639. The first uh, few phrases of that adopting act, I think, are very significant as to the purpose of the, the national covenant. It says, The General Assembly, considering the great happiness which may flow from a full and perfect union of this Kirk and Kingdom, by joining of all in one and the same covenant with God. And so this was, the purpose was to unite both the civil realm and the ecclesiastical realm, both in covenant with God, swearing the same covenant, the national covenant of Scotland, so that they were not working at odds with one another. They were adopting, subscribing the same covenant, so they would be working together each doing and performing its own duty uh, to bring about reformation within the nation of Scotland. That is uh, exactly uh, what we find happening in the scripture. And uh, we'll note that in just a moment. The second act, <clears throat> just beneath that, is one produced by the Scottish Parliament and one which was approved by Charles I, July the 11th, 1640. Now notice that subscribing the National Covenant of 1638 was a necessary qualification to hold public office according to this Adopting Act. It says here, I'm kind of looking at the very middle of this um, of this uh, adopting act so I'm kind of cutting into it but it says do ratify and approve the said supplication act of council and act of assembly and conform thereto ordain and command the said confession and covenant to be subscribed by all his majesty's subjects of what rank and quality soever under all civil pains. Going down, dropping down, just another uh, few phrases. And also ordain the same to be presented at the entry of every parliament and before they proceed to any other act that the same be publicly read and sworn by the whole members of parliament claiming voice therein. Otherwise, the refusers to subscribe and swear the same shall have no place nor voice in Parliament. And sick-like, ordain all judges, magistrates, or other officers of whatsoever place, rank, or quality, and ministers at their entry to swear and subscribe the same covenant whereof the tenor follows." And so both ecclesiastical and civil, upon entering into their office, were required to swear the national covenant. And as I said earlier, this is the biblical pattern of a covenanted nation, wherein church and state are both covenanted to God to perform their respective duties. 
And we just simply note in Second Chronicles 23.16. This is in reference to Joash, King Joash of Judah and, and Jehoiada, the priest. It says in verse 16 of Second Chronicles 23, And Jehoiada made a covenant between him, that is the priest, and between all the people and between the king, that they should be the Lord's people. A covenanted reformation between the state and the church. Both covenanting to God Second Chronicles 34:29 one other very quickly Second Chronicles 34:29 says this and this is with reference to King Josiah then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem that would be the civil realm and the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the levites ecclesiastical uh, realm uh, and all the people great and small and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord and the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book and he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God and the God of their fathers. <clears throat> now, as we proceed to look at the covenant, the first section, and we'll look very Look, spend most of our time in the first section because I think that's where most of the unfamiliar terms will occur. Uh, the first section of the National Covenant of 1638, as we've already noted, comprises the King's Confession, which was originally written by John Craig and uh, subscribed in 1580 and then renewed again in 1590. In the first section of this covenant, we find a very clear affirmation of the true Reformed religion and a testimony against all false religion, but especially against the false religious system of Antichrist, that is, the papal system. We find uh, these words near the bottom of page 347. It says, To the which confession and form of religion we willingly agree in our conscience in all points as unto God's undoubted truth and verity grounded only upon his written word I might stop there and just again emphasize the fact that that these reformers were saying that this document is not inspired uh, but it is of authority because it is grounded only upon his written word. Continuing on where I left off, and therefore we abhor and detest all contrary religion and doctrine. 
pause for a moment, all contrary, that is contrary to the true Reformed religion that is revealed in this document and is revealed in the Scottish Confession of Faith, that's revealed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, all contrary, religion and doctrine. Continuing on with the quote, but chiefly all kind of papistry in general and particular heads, even as they are now damned and confuted by the word of God and Kirk of Scotland. But in special, we detest and refuse the usurped authority of that Roman Antichrist upon the scriptures of God, upon the Kirk, the civil magistrate, and consciences of men. Consider the following we're going to have a long list of those detestable doctrines, but consider now the following detestable doctrines and practices that were abhorred by the Covenanted and Presbyterian Church of Scotland, as well as by all those who were Reformed, all the nations, all the national Reformed churches as well. And so now I began a, a long laundry list, grocery list rather, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of those detestable doctrines. A denial of Christian liberty. If you want to begin here, um, I'm at, on the pa- top of page 348, where it says, All his tyrannous at laws made upon indifferent things against our Christian liberty. So the, the popish denial of Christian liberty. In other words, uh, the tradition of elders, and which Jesus condemned in Mark chapter 7. Jesus said that they uh, held their tradition up in such a way that they uh, made void, made null and void the word of God. The commandments of God lost their meaning, lost their authority because men's traditions... Uh, became more authoritative uh, within the church and they were not even based upon the word of God these particular things so uh, this is what the Pope and the uh, Roman Catholic Church uh, was guilty of as well imposing uh, man-made teachings and doctrines upon the consciences of, of God's people or upon the consciences of men and those of God's people uh, were warned to flee uh, from this uh, tyranny, and many of them sh- certainly did that. Uh, next, we note, and this is going to be, as you'll see, uh, a brief. I'm not spending a whole lot of time on. We could make this into a, quite a, uh, a series on on Roman Catholicism, but we're just trying to touch uh, many of the things here in a brief summary manner. Next, the denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. He goes on to say, His erroneous doctrine against the sufficiency of the written word, the perfection of the law. So the uh, popish doctrine denies the sufficiency of Scripture. How? By adding new revelation by means of oral tradition from the Pope, the councils. You recall that... uh, that they believed that oral tradition was equivalent in authority to the word of God, so the word of God was not sufficient in and of itself. 
They believed that uh, the apostolic gifts continued uh, after the apostles and that therefore God revealed to them the things that the apostles said or the things that Christ said that were not actually recorded in the word of God. And that's why centuries later you find the, the, the Romish councils uh, and the popes claiming that these things uh, are, author- <clears throat> are authoritative within the church. Not because they're found in the scripture, but because they say they have the gift of apostleship and were revealed to them to have been taught by Christ and the disciples, though not recorded in the scripture. Well, that's a denial of the sufficiency of scripture. Sola Scriptura was the theme of the Reformation. Next, the denial of the sufficiency of Christ. We continue. Uh, his erroneous doctrine against the office of Christ and his blessed evangel or his blessed gospel. That to Christ and the gospel uh, are not sufficient. And again, how is that? Because Christ as priest uh, is not sufficient for, according to Romish doctrine, is not sufficient for uh, God's people today. Um, uh, Christ as our mediator, uh, Christ in his work as our great high priest is not sufficient. Uh, what people need according to Rome is still priests. We still need priests, Rome says. A continuing priesthood that offers the body and blood of Christ to God as a sacrifice. In in a book entitled The New Catechism of the Catholic Faith which has the imprimatur of the Catholic Church um, I read from page 47 uh, question 8 and question 9 what is the most perfect sacrifice? the answer the sacrifice of the mass Question nine. What is the mass? The mass is the offering of the body and blood of Jesus Christ to God. And so uh, that's obviously in stark contradiction to Hebrews chapter nine and many other places in the word of God uh, throughout scripture. But Hebrews chapter nine, just one brief passage. Verses 27 and 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The next detestable doctrine, a denial of original sin. Now, this, I think, requires a little bit more explanation as to how Rome denies original sin. We'll talk about the biblical doctrine of original sin in just a moment, but uh, so that you'll have something to contrast uh, the false with. But according to Rome, God created man 
when God created Adam and Eve, he created them with a natural uh, concupiscence. That is, a, a, a natural sexual lust. That's the way he created them, with lust, according to Rome. In order to overcome this lust, God gave men, gave Adam and Eve, original righteousness. That was to balance things out. So that this, the, these lustful desires would not overwhelm them in this sinless state, mind you. This is before the fall. Now, when Adam fell, God removed that original righteousness so that Adam and Eve simply returned to their creative state of natural concupiscence. And that is what Rome calls original sin. That's quite different from the biblical doctrine. So they simply return to this natural state of, of, uh, of lust. Back to that natural state. Removing the, the, the original righteousness which God gave to them to help them to overcome the lust. That's original sin according to Rome. Now, before we look at the biblical doctrine, this is why marriage in the Romish system is a sacrament. For special grace is needed to overcome lust in the procreation of children. In order to have that, that intimate relationship that God speaks of in, in the scripture uh, between a husband and a wife, in order for that to not be sinful, marriage must be a sacrament to have special grace. The only problem, again, is that uh, marriage originates not after the fall, when sacraments were given, but marriage originates in creation. Uh, before the fall. This is also why celibacy in the Romish system is a higher and pure state than marriage. Because celibacy uh, keeps one from uh, that sinful relationship uh, of uh, intimacy. Now, question 25 of the larger catechism. States this. With regard to what original sin is. Now, you remember, Rome says original sin is simply taking away original righteousness, which basically returns them to their lustful state. So it's no positive, it's no positive action taken upon them uh, where they actually are, are made corrupt. It's simply removing something. But <clears throat> this is what we find in the larger catechism, question 25, wherein consist, consisteth the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? The sinfulness of that estate wherein man fell consisteth in the guilt 
of Adam's first sin. The want of that righteousness wherein he was created. See, our confession, our catechism teaches at creation they were endowed with this righteousness. It wasn't added subsequent to their creation while yet in this uh, uh, in the paradise or uh, in uh, the Garden of Eden. Furthermore, uh, the catechism goes on to say that uh, the sinfulness of that state and wherein two man fell consists of the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. You see, the biblical and confessional position says there is a positive type of corruption and degeneration that, that occurs within man by the fall. The imputation of Adam's sin, the want of original righteousness, and then the corruption of his whole nature. So he's completely disabled, indisposed, made opposite to everything that is good, that is holy. And then from that proceed all actual transgressions. So uh, the, um, the National Covenant uh, charges Rome with with the denying the biblical doctrine of original sin. The next denial, a denial of justification by faith alone. We see uh, in the, again, back to the National Covenant, <clears throat> it says, His corrupted doctrine concerning original sin, our natural inability and rebellion to God's law, our justification by faith only. The Council of Trent which was the counter-reformation council of Rome, which responded to the biblical doctrines revived in the Protestant Reformation. And the Council of Trent um, occurred between 1545 and 1563. And the Council of Trent is declared concerning the doctrine of justification by faith alone <clears throat> if anyone says, and I'm quoting now from the Council of Trent, if anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified so that no cooperation is required on his part in order to obtain the grace of justification and that it is not necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be accursed. Canon 9. Canon 11, Canon 11 says... If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and is inherent in them or even that the grace whereby we are justified is solely the favor of God, let him be accursed. And then Canon 12. 
If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sin for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be accursed. Rome also denies uh, an imperfect sanctification in this life. Uh, in other words, that, uh, that sanctification is gradual uh, and uh, in this life it uh, doesn't reach uh, perfection in this life. Rome teaches a perfectionism in this life. Saints are those, and you know, we'll talk a little bit about saints. Saints are those who do more than what God's law requires. When a person becomes a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, these are people, according to Romish heresy, that actually do more than what God's law requires. They perform works of supererogation, and that, those are, again, simply works uh, uh, beyond what God requires of them. More than the will of God. More than the law of God requires. Uh, they perform works of supererogation, which works, these works of supererogation, become the basis for the dispensing of indulgences. Indulgences are, are uh, given to people uh, based on works of supererogation performed by the saints <clears throat> they didn't. <clears throat> they didn't need them to get to heaven. It was more than they needed, so they were able to store them up for other people. <clears throat> and priests have the ability to take those works and to dispense them. Um, various occasions, sometimes at funerals, sometimes. Um, at a mass uh, various times uh, usually <clears throat> to um, help people move out of purgatory a little quicker thus we might conclude from this that uh, saints are actually more righteous uh, than God himself for the law is simply the reflection of God's righteous and holy nature Saints, according to Romish doctrine, if they were to be consistent, now they wouldn't say this. I'm, I'm drawing these uh, implications out. Uh, saints, uh, therefore, are more righteous than Christ, for Christ only fulfilled all the righteousness that was in the law of God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, the Lord says that he came to fulfill what was in uh, the, the, the book of God's law. That's what he came to do. And this is, again, uh, relates to uh, the Ro Rome's view of Mary. Mary, according to the, their doctrine of uh, Mary's immaculate conception, and to see the immaculate conception doesn't refer to Christ's conception, it refers to Mary's conception that she was conceived without sin 
and uh, that uh, flows from that again uh, in their in their whole uh, um, heretical system is that she committed no sin during her life and therefore she was assumed to heaven at her death directly to heaven well, uh, and uh, so this is uh, this is uh, actually assumed to heaven without dying is what I meant to say she was assumed to heaven she did not uh, she did not die she was just uh, taken up into heaven and so uh, this this is the uh, uh, a denial of imperfect uh, sanctification on the part of all human beings in this life as is taught in the word of God uh, not, o- not until uh, we uh, see the Lord will we be like the Lord uh, in, uh, in character fully. <clears throat> the next, uh, the next uh, heresy that we find here, and I'm just uh, continuing to read here, um, our imperfect sanctification and obedience to the law, the nature of number and use of the holy sacraments his five bastard sacraments with all his rites ceremonies and false doctrine added to the ministration of the true sacraments without the word of God and so Rome's bastardizing of the sacraments not only has Rome perverted and corrupted baptism and the Lord's Supper but the harlot has conceived and brought forth five more bastard sacraments which Christ never instituted. Those very briefly are these. Number one, as I said, besides having corrupted and perverted baptism and the Lord's Supper, these other five are confirmation and that is where the priest conveys the Holy Spirit uh, by laying on of hands uh, to a person as a second work of grace. It's not Pentecostals who, who originally thought up a second work of grace. It's inherent in Rome's doctrine uh, where in the uh, uh, sacrament, so-called sacrament of confirmation, the priest conveys the Holy Spirit uh, to uh, uh, people. Secondly, the second... Uh, Uh, bastard sacrament uh, penance the sins in this particular uh, so called sacrament the sins committed after baptism are confessed to the priest and forgiven by the priest whereupon the priest gives the confessor a penance to perform so that he might satisfy God for the temporal punishment due his sin and so he renders satisfaction for temporal punishment through his performing of penance. The third bastard sacrament is the is that of matrimony. Certainly matrimony is an institution of God, but it's not a sacrament. And as I've already mentioned, a special grace is needed to propagate children without sinning uh, because of this whole issue of 
uh, of uh, natural lust and concupiscence. And so um, that becomes a sacrament. Fourthly, orders. Special grace given through ordination to priests, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and popes so that they can be the depository and the dispensary of grace to others. And finally, extreme unction. A special grace given to those who are dying so that the sins of the one dying might be absolved before death. Let's see here. Now, this is what the Shorter Catechism says concerning a sacrament. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is an holy ordinance instituted by Christ. Wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Next question, which are the sacraments of the New Testament? The sacraments of the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so, uh, the uh, definition of sacrament, according to our shorter catechism, is that it is a something ordained or instituted by Christ himself, wherein by sensible signs, signs that you can see, feel, those types of signs, uh, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Now, marriage is not even only for believers. And so, uh, in this particular case, you have something identified as a, a sacrament that even non-believers uh, can participate in. Uh, all kinds of problems uh, that you can see, I'm sure, with uh, this whole issue of sacraments. Okay, moving on. Uh, his cruel judgment against infants departing without the sacrament his absolute necessity of baptism. So the belief that all unbaptized babies are excluded from heaven. Uh, they, they don't necessarily go to hell, but they are excluded from heaven. They go to a place uh, which is called limbo. It's a place outside of heaven, but without uh, positive pain inflicted upon uh, these children. And again, where is that found in the scripture? Um, well, again, they would say, well, it's, it's revealed by means of oral tradition. And along with that, the belief that baptism is absolutely necessary to salvation. Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross who was not baptized, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. In Acts 10:44 through 48, Cornelius heard the word of God preached, the Holy Spirit fell upon him 
And so he was converted. The Holy Spirit fell upon him. He was saved. And then after being saved, apart from baptism, water baptism, uh, Peter says, uh, how can we now deny baptism to those who have received the Holy Spirit? Continuing on now, his blasphemous opinion of transubstantiation or real presence of Christ's body in the elements and receiving of the same by the wicked or bodies of men. So the belief in transubstantiation uh, is a, a, a heretical position. That simply would be that the elements of, of uh, bread and wine after being blessed by the priest uh, are changed into a different substance. Though outwardly they continue to look like bread and wine, the essence or substance of them is actually changed uh, so that they are, according to Rome, uh, the, the actual body and blood of Christ. And, uh, you know, it, it's really quite a uh, an amazing view because in the original institution uh, when the Lord Jesus took the bread and took the wine and he was standing there in person and he said this is my body uh, this is the cup of the new covenant uh, a testament of my blood uh, he was there in person he was there in body and uh, it it's very obvious from the way in which Jesus refers to himself as the, as the door. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. That this is symbolic language. Jesus is saying that this bread uh, signifies my body. This wine signifies my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Uh, there was no hocus pocus going on at that particular point when uh, the uh, uh, at the first institution of the Lord's Supper <clears throat> this uh, uh, this whole idea uh, breeds a very superstitious view of uh, everything that the priest does uh, it's almost like magic is being performed up there on the stage and uh, this is what happens with uh, with uh, these these various views as we'll uh, as we continue through. You'll see more of this. <clears throat> His dispensations with solemn oaths, perjuries, and degrees of marriage forbidden in the in the word. That is the dispensing or revoking of oaths. Uh, the only time oaths and vows can be dispensed with is when uh, they are unlawful. And then it is not a priest or pope who grants such a dispensation, but it's the word of God, which alone binds a man's conscience. 
And so we find, for example, that uh, the Pope uh, uh, and uh, Jesuits, uh, they uh, uh, can uh, take false vows and false oaths, never intend to, to keep anything that they have uh, vowed to do uh, because uh, they're uh, taking an oath to an, uh, to an infidel or to a heathen or to one who's not a Catholic. And so they're not obligated to keep it because they, they, they swore this oath to, uh, to one who was uh, not of the true faith. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. We find even in the case of the Gibeonites, who were certainly not covenantally related to Israel, that they were obligated to keep the oath, or the, uh, the oath uh, that was sworn to the Gibeonites. Furthermore, um, uh, the dispensing with degrees of marriage forbidden by, uh, by God. In other words, we find in Leviticus 18 and 20 that uh, men and women are not to marry within certain degrees of relationship to one another. And yet the Romish church permits that uh, those laws uh, to be uh, basically ignored, neglected, that people can, at the dispensation of the, of the priest or the bishop or the pope, uh, can marry within those particular degrees of consanguinity. That is what we call incest. That's an incestuous marriage, to marry within the, uh, the degrees uh, forbidden by the word of God. If that is done, um, the word of God declares that to be an unlawful marriage and it must be ended. <clears throat> Continuing now, his cruelty against the innocent divorced. Uh, so the uh, very conveniently, the uh, Romish church denies divorce to innocent individuals. However, marriages are uh, annulled. Sometimes after many years, after having been con contracted by special dis dispensations of the Pope or of the church. And so they don't believe in divorce. They believe in annulments. And so, uh, again, um, innocent parties, for example, who have been grievously sinned against, have no recourse contrary to, to Scripture, where the Lord and Paul both speak of uh, fornication and, uh, and uh, abandonment, desertion, as being just grounds for, for a lawful divorce. His devilish mass. Well, we don't probably need to spend too much uh, time about that. Um, the, uh, the adjective says, I think, enough about what they thought about the mass. Devilish mass. His blasphemous priesthood. Again, because that, uh, uh, that uh, undermines... Uh, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. His profane sacrifice for the sins of the dead and the quick, the living. In other words, Mass is said for the dead. Uh, 
who are in purgatory in order to shorten their stay there. Uh, many, many things wrong with that. I mean, uh, mass, it's a devilish mass, as they said. Uh, but furthermore, thinking that you can actually affect, uh, that we can affect here upon the earth, the actual uh, movement of somebody from one location to the other after they've died. Uh, that certainly isn't taught at all in, uh, in Scripture. Quite to the contrary, in Luke 16, you find the rich man crying, appealing to uh, Abraham, appealing to, the, uh, to Lazarus, uh, the poor man, uh, to uh, quench his thirst, uh, to allow him to go back and to uh, tell his uh, brothers about this terrible place. He's not, uh, he's not in uh, simply a purgatory that he's going to eventually migrate out of and then uh, immigrate uh, to heaven. Uh, he's, he's in a place of torment that is called, uh, in, in the English version, hell. And so there are only two places for departed souls after death. Uh, hell and uh, heaven or paradise. Next, his canonization of men. What does that mean? His canonization of men. Men being canonized. That is that uh, men are, are declared to be saints by the uh, Romish church. In uh, a little work called Secrets of Romanism, I'm reading uh, from page 141. This again is from the Council of Trent, uh, session 25. The saints who reign with Christ offer up their own prayers to God for men. It is good and useful suppliantly to invoke them and to have recourse to their prayers, aid, and help for obtaining benefits from God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who alone is our Redeemer and Savior. Those persons think impiously who deny that the saints who enjoy eternal happiness in heaven are to be invoked, who assert that they do not pray for men, who declare that asking them to pray for each of us in particular is idolatry, repugnant to the Word of God and opposed to the honor of the one mediator of God and men, Christ Jesus. And so... Uh, we are to pray to them for their help and aid, and they pray for us, according to Rome. This is uh, abominable, as the Word of God teaches, that we are only to pray to God, to no creature except God. Calling upon Angels or saints departed, which we've already uh, alluded to. Worshipping of imagery, relics, and crosses. Now, this is clearly uh, a violation of the second commandment. Uh, and in question 51 of the Shorter Catechism, we find... 
a summary of the second commandment as to what it teaches says this what is forbidden in the second commandment the second commandment forbiddeth the worshipping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word dedicating of kirks altars and days believing that that there are again uh, that a church or an altar or days ought to be dedicated that they ought to be separated Uh, that is as far as uh, dedicating uh, buildings altars and days that is specifically part of the old covenant it is not a part of the new covenant under the new covenant there isn't any particular place where worship must be uh, performed worship can be performed in a house it can be performed in an open field under the new covenant Uh, no particular day of the year ought to be uh, under ordinary observation uh, a religious holy day except the Lord's day and uh, on extraordinary um, occasions there certainly can be days of fasting days of Thanksgiving, but all uh, ordinary days of dedication for religious purposes have been done away with under the old covenant so that what we have under the new is simply the Lord's day. Galatians 4.10, Paul rebukes the Galatians, ye observe days, weeks, months, years. You're still under this particular system. You ought not to be. Okay, continuing on. Vows to creatures, and we've alluded to that, uh, would be the saints to angels. His purgatory, prayers for the dead, Purgatory being again a place where those who will eventually find themselves in heaven have to spend uh, hundreds, thousands of years uh, burning off, uh, uh, being purged. That's the word purgatory comes from purged, uh, being purged of their uh, of their sin, uh, paying. In other words, again, Christ's satisfaction is not sufficient. What Christ accomplished on the cross is not enough. You've still got to do something. It was not paid in full. Praying or speaking in a strange language. Do they speak in tongues? Well, yes, they do. Uh, It's a reference to services in Latin. And um, that is... Uh, a language which common people, uh, even uh, back um, many years ago, did not understand. So they might as well have been speaking in a in a 
another uh, language of, of a nation because they didn't understand Latin. And so this is condemned by 1 Corinthians 14, which says that we're to edify, we're to speak in the language of the people. Uh, they can't be built up and edified if they don't understand because edification is based upon understanding what is being said. The Holy Spirit will apply. He doesn't bypass our minds. He doesn't bypass our understanding. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God, which is given in, in, in simple, clear, in our case, English, so that you understand what God is saying. And then, um, as the word of God is applied, it becomes uh, to us power and strength and encouragement. <clears throat> so it continues praying or speaking in a strange language with his processions and blasphemous litany and multitude of advocates or mediators and so all of the all of the various processions uh, uh, up and down the aisles and and uh, you know the uh, the priest carrying that uh, uh, the uh, scepter or the banner or whatever across various things with all of the uh, those behind him uh, those types of things as well as the various uh, mediators being saints again angels um, uh, become mediators uh, instead of simply the one mediator um, uh, between God and man, according to 1 Timothy 2.5, Christ Jesus. His manifold orders, that would refer to all of the orders uh, uh, being uh, all of the unbiblical offices that uh, are established by the papacy, the priest, the archbishop, the cardinal, the pope, the abbot, uh, on and on and on. All these unbiblical offices. Manifold orders. Auricular confession. Auricular confession. Auricular refers to something that is heard. And so this is a confession that must be verbal and spoken to a priest. And without that, there is no forgiveness of sin. Unless you confess that sin to a priest, you will not be forgiven. You cannot go directly to God and seek his forgiveness. And so we say, what is the Lord's Prayer all about? This is what Christ said was a pattern of prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so, uh, again, blasphemous. His desperate and uncertain repentance... Uh, focus on the, that idea of uncertain repentance in the next phrase his general and doubtsome faith uh, in the Romish church you can never be absolutely certain that God has forgiven you because you may have either placed on your own part you may have placed some impediment in the way of grace you may have done everything right but there may have been some impediment, something you have placed in the way that would prohibit that grace from reaching you. Or, on the other hand, the priest may have some impediment in his life. And so you can't ever be sure that even accepting their view for the sake of argument that it was correct, 
you can never be sure that you're actually forgiven. You can never be sure that you're actually saved because the grace has to come through these channels, through these sacraments. And if either you have some impediment or the priest has some impediment, you know, some blockage, something in their lives, something that's blocking it, then it won't happen. And so you can never be certain. You're always in doubt. In fact, certainty or assurance in the Romish view, is a mere presumption and is a grave sin to have certainty or assurance of salvation. That's foreign to a Roman Catholic. His satisfaction of men for their sins. Again, we've already alluded to many times how their doctrine teaches that men can satisfy uh, uh, what Christ was supposed to have satisfied men uh, fill out and make full. Um, <clears throat> his justification by works. We've talked about uh, how the Council of Trent denied justification by faith. What's left is that justification by works. Opus operatum. Opus operatum. That's a Latin phrase which simply means in the doing it is done. Or in the accomplishing, it is accomplished. In the performing, it is performed. That is, when the priest performs an action, it is not a sign or seal, as, as uh, uh, in the case of the sacraments, uh, the two sacraments uh, that Christ has given to us. Uh, these actions on the part of the priest are not simply a sign or seal. Uh, they, they actually accomplish and convey that grace in the dispensing of it in actually doing it it can it, it conveys the grace at that particular point in time for example when the priest baptizes sin is washed away original sin is, is, is cleansed when the priest blesses the elements of bread and wine they actually become the body and blood of Christ and again, as I said earlier, because of this view of opus operatum, the uh, superstition just reigns throughout the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, people uh, watch with uh, great awe and wonder because all that the priest does up there is a miracle. Every time that he does something up there, it's miraculous. And just because he does it. He has that uh, power supposedly given to him by God to do so. Works of supererogation. We've already talked about that. Merits. Pardons. Uh, I think are self-explanatory. Um, peregrinations. Now, what is that? And let me just mention peregrinations and stations. Uh, these are meritorious pilgrimages. Peregrinations are, are pilgrimages uh, that are done as acts of penance or favor before God. Uh, you're told uh, to, to, uh, to do this particular pilgrimage uh, so as to show that you're actually sorry for your sins. This will uh, alleviate uh, punishment uh, for your sin, temporal punishment. That's uh, peregrination. And stations refers to the stations, uh, the very stations of Christ's journey to the cross 
which are superstitiously said with a rosary. The various stations in a rosary, um, you start um, you know, with uh, uh, Christ in the garden and you work to Christ of being judged by Pilate and, and Herod and, and then him carrying the cross and then you know, on and on and on. And at every station you say your Hail Marys and your uh, Our Fathers and, and so many of those with every bead with, on the rosary. And so you go around and around. Uh, the rosary, but the, there's uh, several stations on the rosary, and so this is condemned as well. Uh, his holy water, baptizing of bells, conjuring of spirits, crossing, signing, anointing, conjuring, hallowing of God's good creatures with a superstitious opinion joined therewith. The um, Let me look back here again. Oh, the holy water. In other words, there is a water that is uh, specifically consecrated that uh, no one is, is to, uh, to use uh, in, uh, in a way uh, other than the priest uh, would uh, dictate and uh, the priest himself makes it holy by consecrating it. <clears throat> and um, furthermore, the... Um, a baptizing of bells and so consecrating uh, the bells with this holy water. Uh, bells would be used in the service at the point, uh, for example, when the bread and the wine are consecrated, a bell would go off and at that particular point uh, then the bread and the wine become the body and the, uh, and the blood of Christ. The um, Conjuring of spirits, that would refer to exorcisms uh, per, performed uh, by, the, uh, uh, by the priests. Crossing and signing, you know, the sign of the cross, uh, um, and uh, that is condemned. Anointing with uh, oil. Conjuring, hallowing of God's good creatures. Uh, for example, uh, um, saying, for example, that... Uh, uh, fish on used to be uh, certain foods could be eaten at certain times. Uh, they were hallowed. They were set apart and dedicated. But certain other foods couldn't be eaten at certain times, uh, certain occasions. <clears throat> uh, continuing on, his worldly monarchy and wicked hierarchy. His wicked Monarchy, that would simply refer to the Pope's uh, claim that he ruled over all civil realms. Uh, that uh, though, being God ha uh, though being ecclesiastical ruler, God had uh, given to him power over kings and princes as well. And so uh, he uh, had a worldly monarchy. It wasn't a spiritual kingdom. <clears throat> kind of the reverse of Erastianism. Whereas Erastianism is uh, the uh, civil magistrate intruding into the affairs of the church, here you have a worldly monarchy where the where the church controls the the uh, the, the civil realm. Well, the wicked hierarchy would refer to episcopacy, um, the various order bishops and things like that, and uh, and in this would not only be condemned the Romish system but the Episcopalian system as well. His three solemn vows with all his shavelings of sundry sorts. 
kind of funny, uh, that last phrase, his shavelings. Talking about the Pope's shavelings. His, uh, his three solemn vows uh, refer to the unbiblical vows of number one, perpetual celibacy. Number two, professed poverty. And number three, implicit obedience. You'll find those in the Confession of Faith, chapter 22, section 7. Uh, those are unbiblical vows. To it's not unbiblical to be uh, cel- uh, to be uh, uh, a celibate. Uh, it's unbiblical to to vow a perpetual celibacy, though. Uh, unbiblical too to vow a professed uh, poverty uh, uh, to uh, profess that uh, that you're simply going to uh, live in poverty. Um, and it's unbiblical to vow uh, implicit obedience to anyone, any creature. Uh, only uh, the Lord God should have uh, our total obedience. Shavelings, uh, it says his, solemn, uh, his three solemn vows with all his shavelings refers to the priests whose heads were shaved on the top. So those are the shavelings that are referred to there. His erroneous and bloody decrees made at Trent. We've alluded to the Council of Trent and all the false teaching that came from that. With all the subscribers or approvers of that cruel and bloody band conjured against the Kirk of God. And finally, we detest all his vain allegories, rites, signs, and traditions brought in the Kirk without or against the word of God and doctrine of this true reformed Kirk. And so... Those, uh, I think, would uh, at least, uh, in summary form, took uh, quite a while, but in summary form, uh, you now understand what all those things refer to uh, that, are, uh, that have to do with the Romish uh, church there. Uh, before I, I just will probably only take another five minutes and I'll be finished, but um, uh, in this first section, I just want to note uh, in the last paragraph of the first section, page 349, just uh, before the word Amen, uh, we find there um, uh, the King's Majesty being defended. And let me simply point out again, uh, it says, We protest and promise with our hearts under the same oath handwrit and pains that we shall defend his person speaking of the king's majesty and authority with our goods, bodies and lives notice the condition in the defense of Christ his evangel that is the gospel liberties of our country ministration of justice and punishment of iniquity against all enemies within this realm or without the condition to that submission was not an unqualified submission. The second section of the National Covenant of 1638, as I mentioned, was written by Johnston of Weston and consists of the parliamentary acts that demonstrate the, the, the civil warrant for such a, a covenant and that the Church of Scotland, uh, found upon, founded upon the refor- true Reformed religion, even had uh, the civil legislation and uh, acts of parliament uh, establishing it as such and so you'll find all of those in this section but uh, just uh, two, two other things I just have you quickly note 
um, if you have the uh, Free Church publication, at the bottom of page 350, this uh, note, or this uh, phrase, that none shall be reputed as loyal and faithful subjects to our sovereign Lord or his authority, but be punishable as rebellers and gainstanders of the same who shall not give their confession and make their profession of the said true religion. Quite a statement. They were not to be reputed as loyal and faithful subjects, not simply to the kingdom, but to God, to Christ, but were rather to be punished if they could not make confession and profession of this true Reformed religion. Note also on page 351, and I won't read it. Well, I think I'll take just a moment to read it. It's very short, but uh, this is the coronation oath that the kings were to to swear as they were uh, inaugurated to their office. Very bottom of, uh, of page 351. It says that all kings and princes at their coronation and reception of their princely authority shall make their faithful promise by their solemn oath in the presence of the eternal God that enduring the whole time of their lives they shall serve the same eternal God to the uttermost of their power according as he hath required in his most holy word contained in the Old and New Testament and according to the same word shall maintain the true religion of Christ Jesus, the preaching of his holy word, the due and right ministration of the sacraments now received and preached within this realm, according to the confession of faith immediately proceeding, and shall abolish and gainstand all false religion contrary to the same, and shall rule the people committed to their charge according to the will and command of God revealed in his foresaid word, and according to the laudable laws and constitutions received in this realm, no wise repugnant to the said will of the eternal God, and shall procure to the uttermost of their power, to the kirk of God and the whole Christian people, true and perfect peace in in all time coming, and that they shall be careful to root out out of their empire all heretics and enemies to the true worship of God, who shall be convicted by the true kirk of God of the foresaid crimes, which, it goes on to say, which was also observed by His Majesty at His coronation in Edinburgh, 1633, as may be seen in the order of the coronation. That would be Charles I took that oath. No uh, pluralism there, is there? Um, Uh, There is uh, not this idea of toleration of various views. Um, The the true Reformed religion was defended and established. And then uh, one other uh, very brief observation in the second section. Uh, On page 352, note the perpetual obligation of this covenant and how it binds all succeeding generations. This would be Uh, near the uh, end of the second paragraph. Uh, The last sentence of the uh, second paragraph. And finally being convinced in our minds and confessing with our mouths that the present and succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the foresaid national and subscription inviolable. Bound. 
present and succeeding generations. And I simply note, if it binds even one descendant or even one generation after those who were present and took it, and if it binds even one person afterwards who was not present then, then it must bind all descendants and all succeeding generations. There's no way that you can possibly stop it at the second generation. And it would not bind the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth generation. And then finally, the third section of the National Covenant of 1638 was written by Alexander Henderson and relates the covenant to the circumstances of that present age. And again, I would simply note two things very briefly. Page 353. Page 353, uh, the uh, second, uh, it's the first indented paragraph there. <clears throat> it says, And in like manner, with the same heart, we declare before God and men that we have no intention nor desire to attempt anything that may turn to the dishonor of God or to the diminution of the king's greatness and authority. But on the contrary, we promise and swear that we shall to the uttermost of our power with our means and lives stand to the defense of our dread sovereign, the king's majesty. That would have been Charles I at this time. His person and authority. Now notice the qualification again. In the defense and preservation of the foresaid true religion, liberties and laws of the kingdom. As also to the mutual defense and assistance, every one of us of another, in the same cause of maintaining the true religion and his majesty's authority. And so again, not an unqualified submission, a qualified submission. And finally... On page 353, again, simply note in this section, uh, at the very end where I was just reading, go to the very bottom of that paragraph, the last sentence. Neither do we fear the foul aspersions of rebellion, combination, or what else our adversaries from their craft and malice would put upon us. Seeing what we do is so well warranted and ariseth from an unfeigned desire to maintain the true worship of God the majesty of our king and the peace of the kingdom for the common happiness of ourselves and our posterity. Again, they understood this to relate not only to themselves, but to their posterity. Well, that's all that I'm going to take the time to, uh, to go through at uh, this time in this uh, series and uh, so thank you for your uh, attention You've been very patient are there any questions um, Fred would you agree that uh, um, even though this covenant when you're speaking at Rome a lot of times say for instance when it condemns the council of Trent mm-hmm. um, Arminian in our day of the cults 
and all those groups, they're, wouldn't they be uh, condemned under the same thing? Because they're, they actually say much the same thing, and there aren't many of them I've actually even heard say exactly the same thing that's being said currently. Yeah, the question is, uh, would, would not those churches that hold the same teachings, even though this was uh, specifically condemning uh, Trent, would not... Um, uh, those churches that hold the same teachings of Trent be condemned, then certainly that would be the case. Anyone who holds those views uh, would be condemned uh, uh, because it, it's, a, it's not simply a question of uh, condemning uh, uh, a particular organization, but it's a condemning a false teaching, a false doctrine. And whoever holds that false doctrine would fall under that condemnation. Yes. Uh, you mentioned Hocus Pocus when you were talking about the maps. Mm-hmm. Did you heard that that had uh, come from Hocus Corpus Man? This is my body. That's what it originally. I had heard that. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I have heard that uh, before. I. Um, yeah, the superstition, right? Yeah, yeah. The ho- the actual words Hocus Pocus originating from the from the uh, words that are used at the at the time of the mass, right? Are there any other questions? Yes. section maybe to elaborate just a little bit on at the beginning we talked about denying uh, liberty uh, by making necessary uh, something to the effect of making necessary uh, uh, elements of worship I think we're driving at that. The very first one? And just to elaborate on what I, what the, that refers to. Okay. Yeah. Let me uh, just quickly look at the uh, wording here. So the question had to do with the uh, issue of Christian liberty and uh, the the national covenant speaks of the uh, Roman Antichrist and all his tyrannous laws made upon indifferent things against our Christian liberty. And uh, uh, the kinds of things that uh, might be in view here um, that he might forbid, uh, for example, and say, uh, or that he might uh, even uh, impose uh, upon the consciences, I think, would be more the uh, the idea of certain things that he would impose upon the consciences of people that they must either believe or practice and worship. Um, uh, I mean, just look at everything that we just went through would be uh, a violation of Christian liberty. Uh, I mean, every single thing there is a violation because it's imposed upon the consciences of men uh, apart from the warrant of God's word. Would you say, though, today that would uh, hold true, say, if somebody imposes, uh, uh, if a minister stands up and says, you have to sing a man-made, uninspired hymn, he has a warrant from the word of God to say that, would that be catching that uh, by inference? Yes. Um, so the uh, yeah the question again has to do with uh, can uh, under this particular uh, false teaching 
uh, of uh, tyranny uh, within the church and uh, violating Christian liberty, can we say that a minister who would impose uh, the singing or who would uh, lead a congregation in singing uninspired hymns or using uh, instruments in a worship service, would that uh, be a violation of Christian liberty? And uh, certainly it would be. That's right. Yeah, we're, we, those are the, anything that violates Christian liberty is to, is again, um, that's a question of tyranny and usurped authority. That comes from Christ alone. And uh, someone who imposes something that Christ has not warranted has usurped the authority of Christ. Yes, Greg. On uh, page 350, mm-hmm. it says that uh, all who gainsay the word of the evangel are uh, received and approved as the heads of the confession of faith, the past in 1560, are to, are to be considered no members of the said Kirk within this realm. Is that in the middle of the page? Right in the of the page yeah. Okay. Okay, I see. Okay, so it's saying anybody who gain says the confession of faith in 1560 mm-hmm. is to be considered no member. And then it goes on to say uh, that there is no other face of the Kirk, no other face of religion, than was presently at that time by the favor of God established within this realm. Mm-hmm. Now the point here being there is only one true church per nation according to this, correct? That's, that's right. One uh, established uh, religion that would be the reformed uh, the true reformed religion established in each nation would be uh, the true true church within that nation yeah there wouldn't be uh, there wouldn't be several different churches uh, according to this national covenant uh, that would be permitted within Scotland for example or within uh, any other reformed nation and so um, uh, those who did not adhere to the uh, Confession of Faith of 1560 would not be uh, a part of the of the Church uh, of Scotland. And those who did not take this covenant That's right. were not considered the true Church. That's right. Those who would not subscribe this covenant as well would not uh, be a part of the Church. They would uh, be considered uh, uh, contraveners. They would be considered... Uh, um, uh, having committed uh, crimes uh, against the church and state. So consequently, then, anybody who gainsays this covenant and confession now mm-hmm. as to its morality mm-hmm. would fall under that same condemnation. That's right. That's right. Those who would, uh, those who would say that uh, this is not a binding, uh, a binding covenant. Uh, upon the moral person of the church would uh, fall into the same condemnation. Yes, right. If they if if people contravened the, the covenant or spoke against the covenant or the confession of faith, they would be considered separatists and, and schismatics. That's correct. Either, either that or yes. Yeah.
I think this is this is some of the strongest proof that we see about what the reformers believe mm -hmm. about the nature of the true church. Either you believed us mm -hmm. or you weren't in the church. That's right. Yeah, you can't get much more clear uh, than than you the the phrases that are mentioned there about their view of the church. All right. Thank you very much for your attention. <clears throat> this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.